0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: Wishful thinking of the Labour Party.
0: A shameful and pathetic attempt.
1: This government is a government of cronies and donors. The reports in the paper today are wrong.
2: Chaos, confusion, dysfunction.
1: That is such a bubble question. I'm just going to leave that one in the bubble.
2: Oh, we're
3: still in the bubble. Hi, I'm Fran Kelly from RN Breakfast. We're going to be in the bubble for a while, Fran. I'm Patricia Carvelis from RN Drive. You're listening to the Party Room podcast. The election's over and yet there's quite a lot to talk about still. We have, a. How course- can that be, PK? How can it be we can still keep talking when the election's done? Because there's still a government that has been elected and there's an opposition that has to sort out who will be the Labour leader. So there's politics actually never goes away. It just kind of peaks and then the next season starts.
2: Okay, well let's talk about that. Let's talk about Labour leadership because the the PM seems to have kicked back a little. We know he's going to announce his ministry probably over the weekend. So we'll come to that later. But Labor, it's all about Labor, Labor, Labor. They don't really have a leader. They've got the old one standing in and they're having another contest. The last one wasn't enough for them. They've decided to go again. And the contenders, PK, Anthony Albanese, as we record this, is the only one right now. Chris Bowen said he would contest but then changed his mind Jim Chalmers, who's sort of the next generation, he's a Queenslander, he's from the right. Anthony Albanese is from the
3: left. Jim Chalmers is, as we record this, still thinking about it. It's quite obvious that Anthony Albanese is the front runner. In fact, Chris Bowen, when he decided to pull out of the race uh, the day before, declaring he would run and then declaring he was going to pull out said that he was the front-runner, said he was the favourite. I mean, clearly Anthony Albanese won when it comes to ALP members, the membership when he ran against Bill Shorten. So... We know he's quite popular in the branches. That's a fact. That's, you know, there's evidence from the last leadership challenge, the last leadership race. So he is the front runner. But of course, the outside chance of Jim Chalmers from Queensland running is still alive. We're recording this on a Thursday morning. You know, he may have declared, pulled out or or, or said he's going to run by the end of the day. But either way, my view, Fran, I think it's the same as yours, is that Anthony Albanese is... If you look at who's supporting him and the fact that he has such strong support in the branches, likely to become Labor leader now. And there's a reason for that. And I've spoken to lots of people, particularly in the New South Wales rush, about why they're backing him. Because they weren't prepared to back Chris Bowen and they're not prepared to back... Uh, Jim Chalmers, people like Tony Burke and Christina Keneally, you know, people who have put their support behind Anthony Albanese, they they think he's the one that has the kind of character and experience and uh, the name recognition in Australia to be able to lead Labor. They think, you know, this kind of larrikin way that he's described, he clearly is a pretty a grassroots campaigner, a good good way of uh, communicating with Australians. He's a pretty you know average guy. That's the way they're going to market him, and they think mm. that that's going to work for them.
2: Does he talk Queensland, though, PK? That's what they're all considering, given the results in Queensland. Does he talk Queensland? He probably does. Jim Chalmers would too, I suppose, seeing as how he's a Queenslander. Um, This is a formal process. It's now officially started. Uh, Nominations close on Monday, so anyone could still appear, but we think it will only be ultimately either Jim Chalmers or Anthony Albanese and potentially only Anthony Albanese. Though I do think there is something to the Chris Bowen argument or suggestion that a contest is not a bad thing for the Labor Party because it would mean there'd be people out there going around the country talking to the to the rank and file, getting them involved in a contest ideas. That, that was quite a positive process for Labor six years ago. Whether they're in the mood for that now or they're licking their wounds and really they just need to get on with it, we're yet to see. There is an argument, I suppose, for not bothering with that drawn out process, which wouldn't officially finish till June the 27th, That is the risk that Parliament could be called before then and Bill Shorten, whose interim leader, would be finding himself at the dispatch box again. I think that thought would be very tempting to Scott Morrison to try and move heaven and earth to get
3: Parliament back before the end of June, but uh, certainly not what Labor would like. I just want to deal with some issues, Fran, in relation to the Labor leadership, which have been raised a lot on Twitter and text messages to me that people want clarified. One is, why can't Tanya Plibersek still be the deputy? Now, Tanya Plibersek... Uh, clearly, you know, has said she's interested in a senior leadership role. So I don't think she has ruled herself out from being deputy. But the trick is that because she's from the New South Wales left, so is Anthony Albanese. They're from the same faction and the same state. That's a massive issue for them. They can't. It's just that means it's not it gonna can't happen. happen. That's right. It, so. it can't happen. So that that's one issue. The second one is gender. And it's a big one. It is a big one. And the reason it's a big one, other than, I don't know, fairness, but beyond fairness and the fact that, you know, gender equity looks like Australia and all those arguments, the Labor Party has campaigned very strongly on gender equity. So if they have two men in the leadership, of course, I think it weakens their argument against the government having, you know, Scott Morrison, uh, Michael McCormack, Josh Frydenberg all in their leadership.
2: But I think it's more the ongoing... Um, visuals of it, the reality of it actually, it doesn't look like a modern a modern political party that's going to speak to you know all generations. I think this would be an ongoing problem now they i'm I'm pretty sure they have a plan that they think they can get around that, which is to bring up you know Penny Wong would be Senate leader and perhaps Christina Keneally as deputy. So the leadership group would be. It's not quite the same thing. I think it is a problem for Labor if they don't have a female deputy. They've had one most of the time for most of the last two decades, not entirely, but most of that time. Um, I think it's an issue for them, but I don't think it's a problem they can get around. I think the the key contenders for Deputy
3: are Mayor. I think that's right, unless, of course, because I know many of the trade unions and they do have power in these processes with uh, the factions and so forth. It's complicated. I won't get into each one of them, but the AEW, the Australian Workers Union, there's other unions involved. I know there is a concern, actually, about the gender issue. So one way around this that is being floated, is that Jim Chalmers, if he doesn't run for leader, and even if he does, unlikely that he will win, in my view, that he is rewarded with something like treasury, but not deputy leader. Treasury, shadow treasurer is still senior, Mm -hmm. gives him a prominent role. And then uh, they provide an opportunity for someone like Claire O'Neill from Victorian Rush or someone like Terry Butler to be the deputy. Now, I've heard arguments saying they're maybe not ready, uh, they're not experienced enough. Well, I don't know. I, I wouldn't. Well, there's Linda yeah. Burney
2: too in, in this equation. She's Linda in the Burney left. Linda from New South Wales. That's true. I mean, I have another question. Why can't Penny Wong do it? Is it simply that she's in the left or that she's in the Senate? Because, you know, she has um, massive sort of broad appeal right at this moment. I think. So is it just the left thing? It's the left it thing.
3: There's, there's the right won't can't have do it. it. The right won't. No way. Yeah. <laughs> that I'm sure of. That is a guarantee from Carvelis. The right won't have that. No chance. Nah. They um, will absolutely insist on being the deputy if they've swung their support, and some of them in the New South Wales right. I think have, it'll be Anthony I Easy. Mean,
2: I think it'll end up being Albanese and um, Chalmers, probably. But there's people like Tony Burke in there who would have a claim to put up their hand for, for deputy. Richard Miles would have a claim to put up his hand for deputy. There are senior men in there too. Uh, so I think the deputy, which is only the caucus decides that, that um, may end up being the tighter contest here.
3: It's going to be fascinating, though, if you're interested in leadership battles, and I'll put my hand up and admit I am, (laughs) uh, maybe that makes me sad. Look, there's another interesting thing, though, that's worth exploring, because it could Become a problem for Labour, which is the role of Bill Shorten. Now, Bill Shorten's pretty bruised after his election loss, his second election loss, and fair enough, that's a pretty hard thing to deal with for anyone, I think. And there is no one, even the people who don't necessarily like him very much, who would contest how hard he's worked. They all say he worked his butt off. So there is a view that, you know, Obviously he can he's licking his wounds and, and dealing with that. He's not he's said he's gonna stay in the parliament at this stage. He hasn't said he's gonna resign from the parliament. So what role does he play ongoing? Now, I think it's fair to say that Bill Shorten and Anthony Albanese are not like best mates. Uh, they ran against each other, of course. They've never really been buddy 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 with each other and Bill Shorten swung his support behind Chris Bowen and there were a few stories throughout the week and I spoke to a few Labor people who were very concerned about the role he was playing, going, hang on a minute, is he being a numbers man again? Why is he getting involved in this? And he got a bit of a slap down from Penny Wong too this week. I'd be surprised if that were happening. Uh, It
0: wouldn't be consistent with the role that a former leader has uh, and it would undermine the unity that Bill has been such an important part in rebuilding.
2: Yep, that was a slap down, all right, from Penny Wong. Um, Look, I I can understand the message, like, you know, Bill Shorten, perhaps one thing that really always hung around his neck with the sum in the electorate was the role he played in the leadership changes with Rudd Gillard, uh, Gillard Rudd. Um, So no one wants him doing that and creating mischief again. But I think it's a little oversensitive myself. I mean, everyone in the caucus gets a vote. Um, Other people coming forward and saying who they'd support publicly, you know, Penny Wong did it, Christina Keneally did it, others have done it, Tony Burke's done it. I don't see why Bill Shorten can't do it. It, I guess it's how vigorously, and I don't know the truth of this, how vigorously he was working behind the scenes to try and muster support against Anthony Albanese. If it's seen as personal, then uh, perhaps that's what explains it. PK, in a moment, we're going to be joined by David Crowe, Chief Political Correspondent for The Age and the City Morning Herald. But before we get there, perhaps just uh, bringing you all up to date with where this parliament is sitting. Scott Morrison, we know, has a majority, of course. There's still some counting going on. It looks like I think he will emerge with 78 seats in the lower house. Uh, 76 is all he needed to govern. So 78 gives him the speaker plus uh, a buffer of two. So it's not enormous, but it's pretty good. It's better than Malcolm Turnbull got last time. So the government better than their wilder dreams, I think, in the lower house, which means the crossbench there is smaller than it was. Karen Phelps is out, Zali Stegler's in, but the independence day that was being predicted did not arise. So Rob Oakshot did not get elected. Kevin Mack did not get elected in the seat of Farrah. So pretty much the same sort of crossbench we had before and Labour won down. In the Senate too, it's been reflected in the makeup the crossbench in the Senate will be smaller. That presumably I think I don't know What you think, PK, but it will make it easier for the government in the new Senate to get its numbers through. There's still some, you know, touchy kind of combos they have to come to if Labour and the Greens won't back them, but. A smaller crossbench, I imagine that's what a government wants. And just a a footnote on the Senate too, uh, Jackie Lambie is back. Some people will be cheering, others not, but Jackie Lambie will be back. That makes it a more colourful place, to be sure, the parliament. Um, But also the coalition's strong vote in Queensland, or the collapse of the Labor vote in Queensland, looks as though Labor won't get a second Queensland senator up. Now that is big news. That hasn't happened for many, many years, and that means... Most likely, the person to take that seat will be a third LNP senator, and it will be Gerard Rennick. And this is significant because Gerard Rennick made a lot of news in the run-up to this election saying some pretty extraordinary things, including criticising Labor's extended preschool plan as a Labor conspiracy to strengthen government control over child rearing. That's the first thing. And then the other thing he said before the election was that the Bureau of Meteorology, the Weather Bureau, he accused of tampering with temperature data in order to perpetuate global warming hysteria. Now, this person could be in a Senate. Those are obviously pretty extreme views. And just a hint there, particularly the criticism of the Bureau of Meteorology, that uh, the coalition's problems in their party room or tensions over climate and energy policy are not going away. (laughs) David Crowe, Chief Political Correspondent with The Age and The Sydney Morning Herald. Welcome to the
3: party room.
1: Great to be back, Fran. Thanks. You're still standing. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
3: Still standing
1: with uh, a lot of coffee, I can tell you. A lot. Yeah, I'm on my third
3: already. Now... Let's get straight into an issue that actually bubbled up for the government this week. We will talk about Labor because they've been the story, but the government. And this is in relation to the big promise they made in the election. We know the Prime Minister told low and middle income earners they would have just over $1,000 extra in their tax returns if they won the election. But then there was an issue around whether they could recall Parliament before the end of the financial year to pass the legislation for the promised tax cuts, the PM Did an interview suggesting maybe it would be delayed, which, of course, grabbed everyone's attention. And then the Treasurer, Josh Frydenberg, tried to say, "Uh -uh, it's all going to be fun."
1: The reports in the paper today of a delay of a year are wrong. The tax relief will be delivered as set out in the budget. There's bipartisan support, but we need to pass the legislation and the legislation can only be passed when the parliament resumes. Well, the interesting thing here is that uh, Labor did become the story. They made themselves the story over their own leadership. But I found the tax story actually quite interesting because it tells us about The fact that the government's got to regroup, in a sense, after this surprise victory, surprise for a lot of the Liberals, maybe not a surprise for Scott Morrison, who believed he could do this. The situation with tax then means that people assumed and they indicated that they could get Parliament back by June 30 Mm. to make sure that the tax offset could be put in place before July 1, the new financial year. Now, they already have a tax offset for a lot of workers legislated. It's worth $530. You get it when you fill out your tax return. But there was another 550 to be put on top of that, and they haven't been able to legislate that. Now- There's a lot of argument about a broken promise here, but I don't think that you can find a quote from Scott Morrison saying Parliament must be held before June 30. So I think a timing issue, let's be frank, it's not quite like Tony Abbott saying there'll be no cuts to health, there'll be no cuts to education. It's not like that.
2: We could probably find the Prime Minister saying, you know, people, how great is this? People are going to get their tax rebate, their cheque in the mail within eight weeks or 12 weeks back around budget time. They definitely gave that impression. Do you think they did that because... They actually didn't think they were going to get elected. They just thought they could say anything.
1: Uh, I think that was definitely a factor. I think the offer of the tax cut was the key message. The technicalities, well, they could all wait until later. Look, I've talked to Liberals and they've admitted to me that they did not expect to win. Again, I say that Scott Morrison obviously had that self-belief and that sheer willpower to get there, but that wasn't the case for a lot of his Liberals. Now, the situation is that they'll bring back Parliament after July 1. The tax offset doesn't get reflected in pay packets. You only get it when you fill out your tax return. And let's face it, a lot of people don't fill out their tax returns in July. They wait until a bit later. Some of us, must, a lot know, later. we're a bit tardy. <laughs> yeah. We're a bit tardy I'm with our bit paperwork. Late. I'm a shocker. So if Parliament meets and legislates this offset, which has got bipartisan support, the full offset of $1,080 for workers you know, up to around – Goodness me, I think it's around $80,000. I don't have the paperwork in front of me, but up to that level, they can get the full offset. They may have to wait until August. If you rush your tax return and you want to get it in in the first week of July, you'll get the $530, and then later you'll get the $550 credited to your account once it's legislated. You won't have to fill out another tax return, you will get the money. So it really is a timing issue.
3: So it's a timing issue, but timing does matter too. I mean, it's not irrelevant. Now, Labor started already saying, you know, and it's a play on the words from some headlines where Scott Morrison was described as the Messiah from the Shire. They're calling him liar from the Shire. Uh, You know, he, of course, went on about Bill Shorten being slippery, but does this make him look a little bit shifty himself?
1: I really do think that once it's passed by the Parliament, once it's paid into accounts. I think it'll be it'll be a very minor issue in the longer term. I really do think that there won't be any denial of a tax cut to workers assuming parliament passes this, assuming it has bipartisan support which which all the signs are that it does. So it gets it gets done and I don't think the timing issue is registering widely enough with voters to really reflect badly on Scott Morrison.
3: As long as they get their money.
1: Here's another scenario. There's nothing to stop them once the second offset is legislated writing to all taxpayers saying, here's your $550 tax offset. It wouldn't surprise me at all if they could turn that into a political positive.
2: Labor, of course, it's mired in its leadership contest, but it's also doing some soul-surging about what went wrong. Now, the Queensland result presents an issue about jobs and Adani and coal and their position on coal. But, David, I thought it was interesting that Chris Bowen, when he announced he was not going to stand for the leadership after all, he came out and talked about the Labor Party having a problem with people of faith. He said religious, he said, I've noticed if I've as I've been around during the campaign um, that people of faith no longer feel that progressive politics cares about them. This is a major statement, I think, because I've spoken to a few people who say that it was the, some of the religious communities in their electorates that voted against them. This was particularly strong too within some of the communities, heavily Chinese-influenced communities. But clearly, Labor it has some work to do. Why? Why has religion and faith bobbed up as an issue now after the election when we weren't really talking about it much during the campaign?
1: It did come up in a tangential way during the campaign, but I I remember talking to Liberals. I talked to Luke Howarth up in the seat of Petrie in the northern suburbs of Brisbane, and he had a lot of volunteers working for him. And we all know that some of his base is among the Christian churches of that area of northern Brisbane. That's also true of one of the marginal seats um, on the south side of Brisbane, Bonner, held by Ross Vasta. The appeal to the Christian churches of the Liberal and National parties has been part of their success at this election campaign. And I don't want to overstate the problem for Labor because I don't think it's fair to say that Labor has abandoned people of faith. I don't think that's fair. However, there is a perception among some of those people from the churches that the Liberal National Party was the one for them. And that does, I think, reflect a wider argument about who does Labor stand for. Sometimes a lot of the debates that consume Labor are the ones that seem to be about, well, they're very inner city debates. They can be about progressive politics. They can ignore some of those core Christian values, right? There are also people who have been highly critical of the government who've basically sneered at uh, Scott Morrison's Pentecostal Christianity. I think out in the real world, people don't sneer at that. People actually like to have a leader who believes in something who's a person of faith and they don't have to be a Christian. Yes, I do. I don't think that people have to be Christians to actually respect Scott Morrison for being strongly Christian. I think Mm. that that actually is something that everybody needs to get their head around and to stop taking cheap shots at the Prime Minister over the fact that he's Christian.
2: Mm, Two points about that. I mean, I've never really thought that Australians factored that in particularly one way or another. I think we generally in the past, and maybe it's changed now, haven't particularly wanted our political leaders to talk about their faith a lot, Mm. just wanted to get on with it. Um, and, and, And if what you're saying is correct, then is that going to be a problem with Anthony Albanese if he's elected? Because, you know, I don't think he's particularly a person of faith. But also, I note, do you think that the um, the Pentecostal support for the Prime Minister in certain seats has um, made a difference? I'm, looking at the, I'm thinking of the seat of Macquarie in New South Wales, which really wasn't on particular lists of one that was going to change. But at the moment, the Liberals look like they could be taking that from Labor's Susan Templeman. Still not sorted. But there is a Pentecostal community in that seat.
1: I think it could be a factor. Now something's happened at this election that changed from twenty sixteen. In twenty sixteen there was no question get up and the unions hadn't feet on the ground. They had a lot of numbers on the ground. Getting back to my conversation with Luke Howarth in Petrie, he had volunteers. He had volunteers backing him on the ground. Now there are volunteers from Christian churches who are helping the Liberals. So it's it's changed the dynamic and having that support base is really important. Also We can see from some of the individual booths in some of the individual seats, there was a swing to the Liberals. In parts of the suburbs, I'm thinking of Sydney, which I've been looking at today, which are fairly low income, right? Mm. Now, Mm. on, on the face of it, some of the people in these low income suburbs stood to gain from a Labor promise on the minimum wage. They may have voted on other issues. It's not always about a $10 a week tax increase, right, or slightly more than that. Sometimes it might be about social values or what a leader stands for. It might be about the popularity of one leader versus the other. All these factors come into play. It could be about social media campaigns. But I think that social questions do come into it. I remember talking to a family member many years ago. She was a liberal voter, but she Mm. liked Kim Beasley. She liked Kim Beasley because he was a Christian.
3: Yeah, look, I think that's that's a big issue for them. And, and we know it's going to be actually tested because the Prime Minister has promised a Religious Freedom Act yes. and Labor's going to have to have a position on it. So, you know, whether you like it or not, or some people will like it, some people will think, let's not have this debate. It's a distraction. There's mixed views on it, but it's going to happen and people are going to have to declare views on it and figure out how they're going to vote on elements of it. Look, I want to change mm. the conversation because I think one of the other big things that's going to happen in the next couple of days. We're recording this on a Thursday morning, but the Prime Minister will have to determine his new front bench and cabinet. And that's a big deal because he's in power for three years and these people were going to have to determine, you know, who's in charge of what. A couple of tips there. I mean, we know Josh Frydenberg will stay as Treasurer. I think Michael McCormack is safe as Deputy Prime Minister. And, you know, obviously the Nationals get a bit of a say in, in portfolios. But then there are some interesting issues about who comes into Cabinet. My understanding is that Alan Tudge, a Victorian MP for Aston, will come into the Cabinet. He's been around for a while. That Ken Wyatt might take on the Indigenous Affairs portfolio and that'll be interesting because he'll be the first Indigenous person to be the Indigenous Affairs Minister. It's something Labor was promising with Pat Dodson. Of course, they didn't win. What do you think might what else might happen, um, David Crow? particularly Melissa Price, who's been the Environment Minister and has really been a bit, bit of... Well, I'd say a bit of a weakness for their front Mm. Okay, you go there, Fran. Fran never holds back.
1: (laughs) A weakness. (laughs) Well, the the issue there is um, there's actually no pressure on Scott Morrison to have to make any change here. It's all completely his call. On Melissa Price, obviously there are two schools of thought, and you get them both depending on which liberal you talk to. Some believe that she's been a liability. She's been very poor in the environment portfolio. There are others who make the point that the reason she was quiet during the election campaign was because they didn't want to talk about environment. Climate change was something where Labor were hammering them and the government wanted to focus on the tax burden instead. So, therefore, Melissa Price did what she was told by the Prime Minister. And if you do what you're told by the Prime Minister, he can't sack you for it. So, (laughs) if if she followed instruction was a member of the team there is actually a, a case where she may stay on but the other thing is to to move her is to admit failure in that portfolio she wasn't appointed that long ago so to admit that there's a problem that you've made the wrong appointment is something that I don't think Scott Morrison would do readily. In fact, he's actually not the kind of leader who would admit a problem like that at all. So I think that there's a reasonable chance that she would stay. The other reason of course is that there is there were seven women in the cabinet in early March, the last time it was changed, and Scott Morrison wants to keep that. So that means keeping Melissa Price in cabinet, it means replacing Kelly O'Dwyer in cabinet and I think that means that either Susan Lee or Anne Ruston moves up into the the inner sanctum. Jane Hume, have it Jane Hume? Yeah. There was speculation that Jane Hume could go straight into Cabinet, but I've heard from several sources who say that when they've had conversations with Scott Morrison, he's always emphasised that somebody needs to really get a step on the ladder of the executive before they move up too fast. He's actually not in favour of vaulting people straight into the really senior ranks of the ministry.
2: Personally, I think that Melissa Price has been very weak in the environment, and to keep her there just to prove a point or not lose face would be a wrong decision by the Prime Minister. I'm not saying he wouldn't do it, but I think it'd be a wrong decision. But there is a way out of it, perhaps, that he could bring environment back into with energy and give that to Angus Taylor, lead Melissa Price in the cabinet. Susan Lee probably come up, I would imagine. Mm. And if Ken Wyatt does move to Indigenous Affairs, that leaves aged care available, and that's going to be a really significant policy area after the Royal Commission, How do we, who's going to implement these Royal Commission findings. So they're going to need and, a good hand for that. Um, and the other
1: thing, getting back to Ken Wyatt and PK's point about Indigenous, if he moves into cabinet in Indigenous affairs, which is a strong possibility, there will be too many West Australians in cabinet. And that would be an argument for moving Melissa Price down. It would also mean that Scott Morrison would probably have to elevate Anne Ruston and Susan Lee in order Mm. to keep the numbers right. But it's an interesting quandary, isn't it? An Indigenous man moving into cabinet, but also wanting to keep the seven women there. There is a question over Queenslanders feeling that they're underrepresented. And so that means that one of them would move up. And getting back to what Patricia said about Alan Tudge... It does look like if he moves into cabinet, it would be at the expense of Mitch Firefield, who would have to move out because otherwise you'd have too many Victorians.
3: David Crow, always awesome to have you on the podcast. Thanks for coming on.
1: Great. Thanks a lot. See you.
3: It's time for Question Time and we've got one on Twitter that I thought was really interesting, Fran. It's from Harley Morrison and he asks, Is it possible that the polls' consistent Labor will win results swayed the final results a la Brexit in that regular Liberal voters thought Labor was a certainty so they voted Liberal as normal rather than making the change?
2: Well, I think that's highly possible. I mean, that's why governments always want to run as the underdog, isn't it? They don't want to seem, the, the electorate to think that they're shoe in They want to try and get people motivated to back them, to bring them up. So I think that's highly possible. But I, there's been a lot of soul searching going on within the polling community, PK. I'm sure you've seen some of it. And there's a few theories... You know, coming along. One of them is that there was quite a large undecided vote, apparently, even up to the final days of this election, larger than normal, according to Peter Lewis from Essential Poll. And um, how the pollsters, how the polling companies cope with that traditionally is to just split that along the usual major party break. He's saying perhaps something else is going on here that these people who are undecided actually haven't really tuned in until the last day or two. When they do, what's the strongest message? They got they got a strong negative campaign about taxes and their hip pocket from from Scott Morrison, and um, or, or they were always going to be conservative voters anyway, and so that. usual calculation skewed the result by by giving Labor sort of whatever it was, a 50-50 share of that undecided vote, that actually warped the result all the way through. So it was a late engagement by a number of voters, and he thinks maybe polling companies need to revisit how they um, attribute those undecided voters and need to put conservative bias in there. I think that's an interesting theory because, you know, I've said before... Um, I think one of the elements of this surprise result, if you want to put it like that, was a a late-minute, last-minute engagement by a lot of people. They really didn't bother tuning in till the last minute. By then, all those Labor messages had washed over them. They probably had no idea, really, what Labor was offering. They heard a few key messages. A lot of Labor MPs will tell you the key message was death taxes, which wasn't even a Labor policy, but... As we said in an earlier podcast, you know, the government had made a pretty hard-hitting ad about Labor backing death taxes. wasn't true, but it was out there on social media. And it's things like that that perhaps made the difference in the end.
3: Yeah. Look, ultimately, I think also we've got to look at polling more broadly because it showed a Labor bias for for a long period of time. And in fact, it was one of the reasons that Malcolm Turnbull uh, was pushed out. Uh, and so, Tony Abbott was pushed out. Yeah, so it's led... And look, also, there was clearly madness, as um, Malcolm Turnbull calls it, where clearly there was an ideological reason too, in terms of Malcolm Turnbull being ousted, just to be clear, it wasn't just about polling, but it was part of the reason. So... Obviously, polling is a bit of an issue and Mm. polling, you know, is not reliable like we thought it was. And we know this now. And also, I suppose... And it wasn't reliable
2: in America and it wasn't reliable in Brexit. So, you know, it's a global trend.
3: It certainly is. All right, that's it from us until next week. We're going to go back to weekly, as we've told you, because we've had the election campaign. We're smashed, you're smashed, everyone's smashed. Rate, review and subscribe. Tell your friends. And if you want to send us a question or some feedback, tweet us
2: using hashtag thepartyroom or email the party room at abc.net.au. we love to hear from you.
3: Now, Fran, I've got a feeling that you're, you're, you've got a bit musical again this week, am I right? Big effort. Actually, it's not so much me, it's Russell Stapleton
2: and Stephen Tilly. They're the ones who write most of the lyrics and Russ does the music, of course, and they're very keen. They're absolutely fired up by this election campaign, so that's why the songs have been churned out. But there was so much to choose from. It was really hard to say no this time, Pika. Imagine, I Believe in Miracles, hmm? Mm. what comes to mind. I'll burn for you, hmm? Mm. Johnny Farnham, Mm. I'll burn for you. No, 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 we've reached back a little further in time with... A much simpler message. See you, friend. See you, PK. How
1: good is Australia?
0: And here's to you, Mr Morrison. Australia loves you more than you did know. Whoa, whoa, whoa. So welcome back with your majority. Heaven holds a place for those who pray. Hey, hey, hey. Hey, hey, hey. We'd like to hear a little bit about your plans We'd like to help you learn to help yourself Just a little scare campaign, the people got to choose Everywhere we looked, you said we'd lose Over to you, Mr Morrison Why did these quiet Australians turn to you? Don't let us down, Mr Morrison. Miracles don't happen every day. Hey, hey, hey. Hey, hey, hey.
1: I have always believed in miracles. I know that you're all hurting. And I am too. And how good are Australians? This has been a tough campaign toxic at times. These are the quiet Australians who have won a great victory tonight. All of us have a responsibility to respect the result. We can't change the past. My word, we can change the future. Thank you and good night. I said that I was going to burn for you and I am
0: every single